32 counties united by people. My name is Una. And my name is Andrea. And this is United, united Ireland. Ireland. Every week on United Ireland, we go under the hood of issues in Ireland, beyond the headlines, bringing you smart people who know what they're talking about. This week, the era, era of disintegration of American democracy has been well underway for some time. If ever there was really an era where the democracy existed for everyone, we're not sure. But with the Supreme Court's integrity pretty much shot following a series of aggressive ideological partisan decisions was capped by the overturning of Roe versus Wade, a ruling which will have a devastating impact on women's health, choices, freedom, autonomy and futures. What the hell happens next? I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that American twang that you were putting in at the start, Andrea. It wasn't an American twang. It was like, don't you know, when they do the headlines and it's like, Okay, gotcha. We're getting from that. Yeah, okay. No, no. Um, But AOC this week. (laughs) But what is the route forward for America? And are there lessons from the Irish experience that are relevant in a completely different legal context? We obviously know it's very different um, what they're dealing with uh, than what we had to deal with, what our path forward was. So we are joined by none other than Alva Smith. A woman who, of course, was a leader in the Irish fight for reproductive rights, which led to our referendum and constitutional change in 2018, but also a towering figure globally in the ongoing battle for bodily autonomy everywhere. Can't wait to talk to her about it and find some solutions, find the way forward and some tactics that maybe can be shared across the water. Um, But before we do that, it's Patreon time, baby. Do you like this podcast? I'm very into accents today, am I? Yeah. Um, yeah, not very good ones. <laughs> would you like to keep it going? And if you would, um, go to patreon.com forward slash United Ireland, where for just three fine euro, you could uh, help us. It really is a massive help. In fact, it's the only help we have uh, to keep this show on the road. Um, we are very, very grateful for our existing su- uh, supporters. Thank you so much. And if you do want to join them, um, and get that gorgeous, warm feeling of making United Ireland happen and make it with us. Just chuck us a few quid today and it will be massively appreciated. And sometimes you get the Sunday Soothe, um, which eases you out of one week and into a new one with our meditative, optimistic reflections on life. Very required these days, I think. But before First that... <laughs> it's a state before, of the nation. Before we get optimistic, let's get <laughs> pessimistic. It's a state of the nation. <laughs> Airport nightmares continue. And um, we did think that it was, I love the way Irish people are so self-obsessed and riddled with shame that we thought, you know, a few months ago that it was our airport and we did everything wrong. Um, Andrea's dogs agree Uh, (laughs) but it's happening all over the place as we know and you kind of get that feeling of like ah I see the impact of the pandemic on collapsing global infrastructure is well underway there were 60 flights cancelled in and out of Dublin this week causing so much disruption for thousands of people Um, I have done I have I feel like I'm an embodiment of a vox pop this week because I was planning a holiday outside of the country, which I would take on a plane, hadn't decided where to go. I just wanted something like, it didn't really matter the country, just not like deathly hot, but hot and a pool and, you know. Aperol spritz. I don't like Aperol spritz, but an equivalent. Okay, um, fine. I hate yeah. it as well. 
Um, I think people are lying that they like Aperol spritz in general. It's literally anyway. like a, a bitter poison running down your throat. Not <laughs> And then after much, much consultation with my dear partner in crime, we were just like, is this just going to be a nightmare? Are we going to end up spending too much money and then we'll have to be at the airport a million hours early and we're trying to like get this sense of relaxation and it's just going to be bookended by airport chit shows and one of our flight is cancelled and we lose a night or we lose money or hotel booking. So we are actually just going to do the Ireland thing for a few days. So I feel like I'm someone who calls up Joe Duffy or is, you know, uh, vox popped by news talk on Grafton Street or something, or probably outside the airport. Um, now, that was... Comp- go on. So this is all leading me to become conspiratorial in my head and I'm not into it. But I'm like, literally... The pandemic came, everything falls apart. The new world order is taking over. Everyone's got <laughs> their right to trip back. Uh, we're not able to leave our country, essentially. And uh, we're not going to have any energy soon. Uh, food is probably not coming anymore because nobody can afford and, to grow. And it, rain it back, rain it back, <laughs> rain it back. That's, we're, that's where I'm at. That's where that's my where Okay. <laughs> no, I think we're seeing the protracted uh, impact of loads of different things happening at once. Uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. Soon we will be in a parallel universe with hot dogs for fingers and other various <laughs> aspects. Little rocks with googly eyes. If, if nobody has seen that film, you're going to think I'm dog crazy, <laughs> but I would recommend it. Well, um, you have, even if you haven't seen that film, you still might have gone crazy. <laughs> This was compounded by, I got an email this morning um, from Aer Lingus, customer service. Now, I would like to preface this by saying that I love Aer Lingus and I always try and fly Aer Lingus uh, when the, you know, they're flying to, to somewhere that yeah. we need to go to. Um, and they're like, we're just responding to your request and, you know, we're really sorry and, you know, sorry for the delay and we're going to you know, the, the way that we can help you about this, our website, blah, blah, blah. And they just like, and it was just the contact details of their website. This is from a customer service request I made on May 24th for okay. a flight that I was changing. So it's now like the 1st of July. It By the way, it took me nine days on the Aer, Aer Lingus um, phone line to change that flight. I actually cried at one point because I felt like I was in some kind of durational piece um, of you know, Beckety and uh, the customer service phone line. Um, I, so yeah, I'm going, to, I'm going to intervene here and stand up for the world of service providers and say how fucking difficult it is to do anything at the moment when your staff are limited, your staff are then uh, out sick and I have it on a very small basis as one company. So um, if you're a large company that is engaging in all this with thousands and thousands of uh, people trying to contact you when your staff are not there or out sick, I just totally get how impossible it is to make it work. And I think it's fair. We are all getting very annoyed by the individual incidents, but we like as we always say it's systemic issues that are causing all of this and we need to fix those systemic issues and blame them and get angry at them and not at the individual companies um who who are being affected by this 
I think that's very fair. I think that's very fair. Um, you weren't on the phone for nine days, though. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> well, no, no. But you are running a, a business, of course. Um, unlike me. So yeah, no, that is that is fair. But um, yeah, I I just I just felt like I'm actually not going to put myself through a- anything that might be stressful while I'm trying to not be stressed. Um, so staycation uh-huh. it is. They've broken you down. You won't have bro- a country now. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. See? We're going to watch up. this with interest. <laughs> Do your research, Una. Do your research. <laughs> In other news, Tanish uh, Thalia Radker had... Um, uh, I love when, when newspapers say an extraordinary broad. He launched an extraordinary broadside. But he had a, a bit of a rant um, on the BBC uh, Northern Ireland show, The View, about um, the British government basically being melts. and being deserved. Un- Fair play. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> someone said it. <laughs> just said deserved, yeah. Um, saying that they're, what they were doing in the North was undemocratic. It was disrespectful to people in the North. Um, it's taken power away from the assembly that he found it shocking and that basically I mean he basically said that they're lying um, when they're talking about all this like mad stuff about the protocol and all that kind of stuff um, and he was saying in agreement yeah no point. he's dead right like he is right and um, although one thing that I would like Leo Varker to do is stop using this metaphor of so um they put to him Liz Truss's thing where she was saying, what we've seen from the EU so far, solutions that are worse than the current standstill that would actually mean more bureaucracy, which is obviously a load of womp. Um, and Leo was saying... Probably couldn't have said that. No. And uh, actually, Le- I'll stop you there because I think that's a load of womp. <laughs> so <laughs> she did, to be honest. Varadkar said, you know, that's not just the facts. Um, and there are people who are able to say a square is a circle. And I just wish he wouldn't use that metaphor because it's too close to trying to square the circle. So just find something else. You know, say the sky is blue, green, whatever, that kind of stuff. It's just, <laughs> it's just a little tip. Um, Con's <laughs> advice coming through here for Una Malali. <laughs> Listen, some other like dose of a Tory MP had to step down from whatever nonsense position he's in because he got hammered in a private members club and groped to guys, according to The Sun, uh, which subsequently been reported by other newspapers. And he wrote his his um, uh, his letter of resignation, you know, the, the kind of letter that you never want to write, which opens, dear prime minister, I drank far too much last night. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, there's such sleazebags. How many like weird, gropey, like and also like criminal investigations into m- gross stuff are these but there's such absolute like 4am Harcourt Street of a party sleaze balls um okay let's break that down a little bit uh but I think there's a lot of issues within Tory parties and I think we can see with a lot of conservative parties that the things that they say they stand for they never do and inflict their bullshit onto everyone else while actually not living the life they perceive um, and spend their time telling everyone else they should be living. And there's no truth or honesty in them. So there you go. Yeah, fair. <laughs> uh, what else, Andrea? <laughs> Finally, uh, which was the only thing I listened to this week um, or read, 
you had a little bit of a, a tete-a-tete with the Fine Gael Minister on the Irish Times podcast this week following an article you wrote on Monday. Um, how did that go for you? Oh, yeah, this is um, my conversation with Neil Richmond, um, <clears throat> which got a bit of a re- reaction, um, as did the... the. I just wrote a piece on Monday about Leo Radker's trajectory of kind of... Going Another straight- one. <laughs> Going from a trajectory of um, being perceived as very straight talking, um, which I suppose he has been actually yesterday in terms of attacking or not attacking, saying what the British government has been calling out uh, the British government. Um, and Neil Richmond was very unhappy about this. He is a Fine Gael TD. He has been unhappy and critical of the way I write about Fine Gael, apparently. But it was kind of an unusual conversation. I'm not really sure what his point was apart from saying that I'm being mean mm. to Fine Gael. Um, well, I'll tell you what I think about it. Okay. <laughs> that was very, oh gosh, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> tread carefully, Andrea, because you tread on my dreams. <laughs> okay, my, it just all felt very like the establishment I, okay, I hate using words like the establishment okay so Fine Gael have been in government for 11 years they are the party in government they very seldom uh, get articles written about their party and calling out their flaws whereas most other parties especially Sinn Féin uh, get them a lot and I think you come from it from a point of experience, life experience where you're not actually targeting a party specifically. What you're targeting is the party who's making the policies that people are living by and are finding difficult. Um, and because that doesn't happen very often, it seems to rock the boat because it feels like you're attacking them because you're calling these things out. But they're the party of government. So what is to be expected and why is it not happening more often? Um, when and then you kind of have to look at the fact that maybe a lot of the people in the media are not maybe affected by the policies as much and don't then feel the temperature of the nation as clearly or the different temperature so you're providing a different perspective that isn't maybe felt by a lot of other people and to take that personally and to take it as a personal affront and attack is juvenile and then to I felt the whole podcast was literally spent saying we need to get into the meat of it you'd get into the meat of it and I'd be like well we need to get into the meat of it I'm here to talk about that and never actually talk about it so that's how it felt like to me Mm, yeah I don't think um you can listen to it on the it's the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast I don't think Neil Richmond was really listening to me um and I think that that's um one of the problems, right? Like they're, they they won't listen to the criticism that's being leveled at them. And instead they focus on how that criticism, how they feel about that criticism or how that comes across. I mean, I suppose the other thing for me is that like, it isn't lost on me that pretty much all of the um, pushback I get from, from Fine Gael politicians is always from men. Now, I'm not saying that like they're being sexist explicitly or whatever, but that is my experience in my career. And I do wonder whether a male journalist 
or somebody who was like very like much closer to them who was like on the political beat uh, in Leinster House or whatever despite the fact that I mean I talk to politicians all the time but I'm just not in that kind of um environment all the time environment (laughs) that I wonder it's like I wonder would you take a bloke to task loads about this like I'm not saying Neil Richmond specifically it's just is my experience that I do get a lot of um, pushback from male politicians um, and and I kind of always have done and I think sometimes um, that's like a really kind of very kind of ingrained factor rather than one that's like right up at the top. Like that's not, it's, it's, it's kind of a more unconscious kind of factor that I've experienced in my career. Um, that, and you know, it's, it's obvious that most of the, the kind of pushback that I've got generally has, has always been gendered for, for years and years and years. But I think, um, I actually wrote a piece, um, that I was looking back on, uh, I don't know when it was, it was last year sometime. And, I referenced a book that people might find interesting on uh, on this topic, and it's Natalie Ola's book, uh, Steal As Much As You Can, How to Win the Culture Wars in an Age of Austerity. And it's from 2019, and there's loads of stuff good about it, and there's loads of stuff not so good. And it, she basically examines the corrosive effects of neoliberalism in this kind of last decade of British austerity in the 2010s. And Ireland experienced something kind of similar and she kind of contextualizes the defensive frameworks that were erected to shroud politicians and media actually from accountability and to position anyone who launches robust criticism against them as kind of rude or savage or mean. And one of the things that she says is, um, and I'll quote from it here, it was clear that a perverse logic reigned, one that was driven by a fanatical obsession with good manners, delivery and PR news as in new, the French one. Its strange rules dictated that the word stupid was more offensive than the rising levels of poverty, homelessness and other forms of degradation that had prompted its utterance. Meanwhile, for decades, we've heard good taste, pragmatism, sensibleness, civility, respectability and decency used ad nauseum to justify policies whose real world effects amounted to widespread suffering and harm, while also being used as a line of impenetrable defence against any outside criticism. In other words, you know, tweeting personal abuse, for example, at a politician is, of course, like wrong and unpleasant, but it isn't comparable, for example, to the housing crisis that that politician may have participated in creating. So I think that there's the conversation on inside politics really illustrates the disconnect that I talk about and Fine Gael politicians' lack of capacity to self-reflect because there is a massive difference and there is a massive like loss of perspective, I think, in Fine Gael, that if I'm doling out robust criticism, let's say, that is not comparable to, those are words in a newspaper, that is not comparable to the policies that that party I'm criticising are making that are having a very real impact on people's lives. And I think because Fine Gael either won't acknowledge that they failed so much, which obviously is a very uncomfortable thing to do, or won't reflect, or perhaps don't actually experience that within their wider peer group, that they're hanging around with people who think they're great and therefore they think they're great or are not experiencing much hassle, that they just actually cannot see it. And I think that that was quite evident in the the conversation um, that Neil wasn't really listening to me or, or really appreciating what I said. And I think when I was saying that like, my friends are being exiled by the housing crisis and are have been forced to emigrate again now. And he was saying, 
well, you know, loads of my friends left in 2010 and loads of them came back and they stayed. I'm like, bro, like that is really insensitive. You know, I was just thinking of all the people listening to that. Like also loads of my friends too left during the recession. Like, you know, my brother had to emigrate, you know, I lost my job. Like, uh, you know, you know this as well, Andrea, you experienced it. Like our entire peer group and, and community was, was broken by the recession through emigration and everybody experienced that across the country. So to not really relate to the experience of people right now who are being forced to leave this country because they can't afford a room to rent and to reference people coming back, I think really shows that disconnect as well. Um, and I do think that a lot of Fine Gael politicians, when it comes to me for some reason, get very emotional and, and um, they seem very kind of like a lot of the stuff that I write is kind of re- greeted with this like hysteria. And perhaps if they kind of focused on the substance of what I was writing, as opposed to giving out to me for being mean, um, which I don't think I'm being mean. I think I'm reflecting opinion. And I do think that, and I'm reflecting sentiment, I really feel that if Fine Gael think that the temperature of what I'm saying is harsh, then they're in for a bit of a land um, when the election comes around. So that's that. Now, let's talk to Alva. In a crisis, one tends to look for a route out. What's the path forward? What's the strategy? Campaigners have been warning for years, particularly in the Trump era, that Roe v. Wade, which created and protected the American constitutional right to abortion rooted in a right to privacy, was under threat. But there also seemed to be a sense of exceptionalism, even though so many women, particularly women who are poor and often women of colour, have been dealing with not even a slow creep of making it harder to get an abortion in various states, but quite a rapid one. Now, the unthinkable, but sadly predictable maybe, has come to pass. There's a reason the Trump era saw right-wing judges being stacked in courts across America. Nowhere was that more evident and more serious than on the Supreme Court itself. Roe v. Wade is overturned. There are serious questions to ask, as there have been for some years about American democracy itself and its viability. To discuss what the path forward may be, what the impact will be, and what some tactics in resisting may be, we are joined by the iconic brilliant and expert Alva Smith, a key leader, organiser, motivator, fighter in Ireland's very long reproductive rights movement. She recently received the Freedom of the City of Dublin. She is responsible, as so many women and others are across this island, for a different kind of freedom, that of bodily autonomy. Welcome, Alva. Oh, thank you very much, Una. Thank you, Andrea. It's a little overwhelmed by that introduction, but Thank you. <laughs> well, listen, I can intro you for hours and days and years um, with, with everything that you've done. But I want to rewind back. I don't know if you remember in, I think it was 2019 in New York, we were doing an event with some American activists mm. um, on the back of the repeal book. And one of the things that really struck me at that time, and it's, uh, I was you know, experiencing this an awful lot with my uh, colleagues in American journalism as well, that sense of drain that the sense of motivation and resistance that we had in Ireland wasn't really in the atmosphere there. Now, that's understandable. They weren't necessarily in campaign mode as we had been, or they certainly weren't in victory mode as, as we had been also. But obviously, people were kind of drained and pulled apart by the Trump era. But I remember feeling really worried that if that was the energy around the place, um, this was going to be a hard thing. 
In your experience dealing with US activists and lobbyists and so on over the past few years, what has the vibe been leading up to this seismic moment that it's kind of hard to, it's hard to really mm. grasp that it's happened in our lifetime? Well, that that's a really, uh, it's a very interesting way of thinking about it. I mean, if I go back to think about um, contacts when I was either in the States with yourself that time that you're mentioning before that in the, the lead up to that. And then actually, as uh, when I go back a bit further and think about when we were actually campaigning, I mean, I do remember, you know, great American um, uh, feminists coming over and, and, you know, giving us advice and so on and thinking and, and sometimes saying, look, our countries are very, very different. We're in very different situations. We have very different kind of constitutional settings. Uh, we don't have some of the, we don't have the same political clashes and divergences. We don't have the same range of issues because I mean, even at that early stage, uh, the issue of racism was very much on the agenda in the US. And actually it hasn't, it ought to have had, but it hadn't really come on the agenda here. I'm thinking back to say around the time of marriage equality and a bit later or, you know, 2015, 2016, I'm thinking to myself, um, actually, they have a lot of work to do over in the US because already at that point, you could see the impact of the anti-abortion strategy, which was to chip away at the legislation state by state by state, starting with those states where to a very large extent, interestingly, they have remained, starting with those states which were the most conservative, which was basically the South and the Midwest. And they, you know, that, that was a strategy which even we over here in Europe were aware of in, 20, I don't know, 2016 or 18, 19 and so on, and which was very striking when we were over in New York on that time. I'm thinking they're still very, they were still very stuck in thinking about what kind of constitutional route do we take? And I'm thinking, God, you know, the goddess is telling you, get out on those streets, state by state by state. And, and just now that's all very well for me to say that from Ireland. It's another thing entirely to get out there and actually organize it when you're in the middle of Mississippi. But nonetheless, there was a sense to me that they needed that there should have been a sense of urgency. I probably started feeling that really after appeal, Una, to be quite honest, when they were asking us, what do we do? And I'm thinking we are a country of just about 5 million people. You are a country of, what is it? I don't know, it's 100 and something million? I don't know. 300 million or something, yeah. 300 million, absolutely vast. We would fit into Texas five, six, seven times or something. Um, therefore, and it's very, very, very different. So I feel, I, and I would never judge or blame, but it was just kind of interesting to think that there was such certainty that the constitution could never be changed, that something had been set in stone. And one of the biggest lessons that I ever, ever learned in my feminist life was from uh, Christine Delphi, the French uh, feminist who's a very dear person for me. And she said, Alva, you must never, ever, ever take anything for granted. What you have gained, they can take back. And it wasn't apropos of anything that we had failed in. I mean, if we were failing all the time, I suppose, to get what we wanted. But it just really made me think that 
it's never set in stone for women. It's never set in stone for people of colour. It's never set in stone for people with disabilities. That this is work that we have not yet got to the point where those who are powerful are willing not to be so powerful anymore. We just haven't got there in the world. And as long as you have that, you're in trouble. You're always going to have to be pushing back. So I, I feel very, I feel very sad about what, I mean, really genuinely, incredibly sad about the States. If I were an American, would I have been doing anything different than they, than the wonderful women over there? No. I would have been in exactly the same situation. Would I have seen the writing on the wall? Maybe, and so many of them did, but would I have been able really to see my way around it? I don't think so. That doesn't mean that there isn't a great deal that can and needs to be and is being done now. But I think it's really important for us in thinking about this I mean, deeply sad and depressing and demoralizing situation, which has a global impact. And of that, there's absolutely no doubt, both for good and for ill, um, is that, you know, the the impact, as I say, is both good and bad. I mean, if you look at Germany the other day, it actually decriminalized abortion um, that would be carried, that abortions carried out by doctors, not exactly within the terms of the law. So it has slightly liberalized Israel, which is not a state for which I necessarily hold a very high candle, but it has nonetheless further liberalized its abortion legislation. And it was in direct response to what was happening in the US. So, I mean, there are places where people are going to to say, we're not having that. We're not having that here in this particular part of the world, whatever it is. Um, but I think, I think that I, I think about this fallout as happening globally, but also nationally for Americans. And then, you know, there are two slightly different things and you've got to think about them separately. But also if I think about the US, I'm thinking there too, I've got to think about it in different ways. There are the constitutional judicial ramifications. There is the, the political ramifications. And first and foremost, there are the everyday social ramifications for women and girls and everybody, anybody who can get pregnant. And I think that each one of those, you have to kind of tease them out and see how they work. And certainly for um, in, in constitutional terms, just to kind of take that first, I think what the Supreme Court of America is doing at the moment is ultimately going to lead to some kind of blow up, meltdown or blow up. Because if you just think about the past week, they have done three appalling things. They refused to expand or tighten up or whatever is the correct term on the gun laws. They then denied women the right to abortion. They removed that from the constitution. So while it exists at state level, there is no constitutional right to it. And then just yesterday or the day before, they um, they actually really have put now, they've hobbled, they put curbs on the, um, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, that is to say the US government, um, in relation to, um, to controlling emissions, carbon emissions. Uh, so those are three, they're three major issues for the US. I mean, what can be more important just at the moment? 
than what could be more important than abortion, gun control with the appalling tragedy that, you know, it's just 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 had and climate control. So here you have a Supreme Court, which is so way behind the curve that it's you're actually thinking, do they live in the real world? Do they live in the world that everybody else is living in? Are they not making their constitution into such a dinosauric document that it has absolutely, it has no relevance. It, it, it is no longer fit for purpose for the 21st century. A Supreme Court which cannot deal with the issue of climate c- control, a Supreme Court which does not see that Americans with guns are killing Americans and are killing American children and American adults, a Supreme Court which doesn't understand that scourge and a Supreme Court which says after a century of women fighting for equality and gaining equality that does not see, that does not see what it is doing is absolutely not fit for purpose. And I do believe there will be a kickback. However, politically, it has served to polarise the nation even further, as we have seen. And that will come out one way or the other as people flocking in the midterms to vote for the Democrats are, are flocking in the midterm terms not to vote for the Democrats, but for the Trump Trumpists to be out there all flags flying. And in the meantime, the third level of fallout, women and girls and people who can become pregnant in the US in 26 states are in a state of continuing anguish and distress. And the polarization that we see politically is mirrored. East coast, west coast, you'll be able to get your abortion and all the rest of the country. You will need to be not poor, not Latina, not black, not have a disability in order to be able to travel to get it in California or in New York or Connecticut or New Jersey or, or, or wherever. So, sorry for going on for so long. It's just it's something that it's so momentous what is happening. And if I say that in a way it's kind of bigger than women, mm-hmm. I don't mean that there is something more important than what happens to us and our reproductive freedom, because that is the sign of our freedoms. But it is, it is more vast, it is more extensive than that. And it is a terrible scourge and it is a huge danger and it places everyone globally in jeopardy. And I can't say that seriously enough. I don't say it lightly. Uh, you mentioned there actually how Scottish possibly don't realise that they're behind the times and they don't see it, but it kind of feels like they do and it's very on purpose, um, which is very terrifying in itself. But to maybe move towards a more optimistic position, which is what do you think the campaign is going to look like? And that's, I suppose, a two-pronged question in terms of what do you think the campaign is going to look like from the US? And is there anything you think it should look like? What would you say they should do as well? Well, I think you're absolutely right. And of course, you're right to say we have to move on to be optimistic because, I mean, there is nothing. If I don't know about optimism, but it's important to be hopeful because if you can't be hopeful that something can be done, um, it is a, a really tra- genuinely tragic situation. I certainly would be hopeful and I hope 
that um, that campaigners in the US are, are also hopeful, and I think they are looking at the the social media platforms and so on. Yes, they are. Um, I mean, it, it is honestly difficult, Andrea, to. I think you have to be very careful when you're speaking from a European context or the context of a really small country. I would never, ever underestimate the difficulty of the the vastness of the US in the first instance and secondly, the degree of political polarisation that we simply do not have in Europe. We have no experience of that. Look at the coalition governments right across Europe. We have a very different way of doing politics. And the problem is that abortion has got absolutely not just caught up it but but it's kind of one of the engines and drivers of that polarized politics so it's it's hard when you're not on the ground to know what you can do but i would certainly say that to in the first instance it is really important for for campaigners for pro abortion campaigners and i make no apology for being pro abortion because i think we need to say that now let's call spades spades i'm not just if I were in America, I would be saying abortion, as my friend Sinead Kennedy said the other day, what is wrong with saying you're pro-abortion? Abortion is a good thing. It helps women to live lives that are that where they can flourish, that are better. So I would be saying to myself, mm, I think, you know, tackling the Constitution, that's kind of stuck for the moment. And you have wonderful organisations like the, the ACLU, the Civil Liberties Union, they're going to do that. What we need to do is get out state by state on the ground and organise. And I think that that's obviously incredibly important in those states where the 26 states where abortion either is uh, already completely banned or highly restricted or very shortly will be. And it is to get out there and to have You know, it's that thing of doing the protest every single week. You stand outside the state legislature with the placards, with the shouting, even if there are only 10 of you, even if there are only 100 of you, whatever it is, you get out there and you you do that. You keep building that actual street feet on the ground movement state by state by state. And at the same time, you are raising money. You're trying to raise money to ensure that those women who who do need abortion, that's not going to stop. It's not going to stop. You know, now as we're speaking, there are women who are desperate that you're devising the ways and raising the funds for them to be able to go to the nearest possible state where they can and will be able to, uh, to access abortion. And at the same time, you're working on your state legislators because everything has now been handed over to those state lawmakers and you are bombarding them. You are never going to let up. You're going to be there all the time in their faces, in their ears, saying we need to uh, we need to get rid of the, the, the restrictions. We're not taking that because, you know, there is something about looking at what the anti-abortion side did. That is what they did. They got in there to those legislators. So I think that there has to be a turning back of the tables. But in doing so, I think there is an important point. You know, one of the I think one of the reasons, and I, I don't know Una, if you agree with me, but I think you well might. Um, one of the reasons I think why we were in our small country successful with both marriage equality and repeal of the eighth, both of them incredibly difficult, resistant 
problematic issues. I mean, people were just about able to talk about the gays. The word lesbian is still highly problematic for them. But, you know, they, they, you know, they were willing to kind of come because we were talking about marriage and then abortion. They did not want to say the word at all, but they would say choice and so on. But we had to bring a population with us. And we did that not by being confrontational, but actually by being conversational. And that seems like a rather trite kind of way of putting, but it was about saying, look, it was about kind of trying to talk fairly calmly about these things. It didn't mean we didn't get out on the streets and protest because we did, we did. Mm-hmm. And certainly for appeal, I mean, we did that. But there was this sense that you were really working because it was going to be a referendum in each case. We had to bring the people with us. And there's something about having to bring the people with you that actually makes you more conscious of the fact that you have to listen as well as to speak and that you can't give the people a lecture because, you know, I am part of the people and so are you two. And, you know, we know that people come at us and start giving us lecture, lectures. We say, oh, now here, that's enough. Not having any of that. Thank you very much. I'll make up my own mind. And that I think there is something of that that I've been trying to think through the past week <clears throat> in the States that, while it's important to look at the strategies that the anti-abortionists have used and to certainly <coughs> do that lobbying work with the legislators, it is very important not to let it become so confrontational that it becomes a shouting match in each state between yeah. pro and the anti. It's about trying to get that general mass of the population on side. <clears throat> and that you do. I think it's it's maybe slower work, but it is incredibly important. That's the work that comes through the meetings, the leaflets, um, the programs, the uh, the social media. Not fighting, not fighting, not getting involved in all the fights and so on. It comes about always saying, "What is our goal? Our goal is to get a law here in this place that's going to be good for women." or to arrive at that happy, happy, happy moment in the US or in the world where we don't need a law on abortion anymore at all. Because when you think about it, it is the law and the constitutions. It is the judicial and legal roots that have pregnant women and people tied up in knots. Pregnancy is not a suitable topic for the law. It works in terms of uncertainties. Uh, you know, wh- what woman who's been pregnant is, is not going to be saying, a date? They gave me a date? What did that mean? It doesn't work like that. It doesn't. The number of women I know who say, look, oh, Jesus, I never even knew I was pregnant until 10 weeks. And then they're trying to scramble if they need an abortion to get in before the, the they've got, you know, be referred. It's just not amenable. Pregnancy is not something which is amenable to, to law. It just isn't. And quite apart from that, why in the name of the goddesses should women's reproductive system be in the law? Men's reproductive system is not in the law. Why is women's reproductive system in the law? It is about controlling us. It is about control and it's about power. And I think that fundamentally, we really, really need to work incredibly hard now. And I think for Americans, maybe this is the moment to say, screw the Constitution. 
We don't want the Constitution at all. What we want is abortion firmly inscribed in healthcare. So is this a time for moving on medical professionals and campaigning? And, you know, that's maybe too long term for most people. Uh, maybe it's a bit utopian. I happen to think that utopias can come true, and I think you've got to work for them. Maybe this is not quite the moment, but it is about recasting the way in which one thinks about abortion. Um, I mean, just to finish on that point, I think an awful lot of us knew that when we were campaigning for appeal. But we had to get repeal out of the Constitution for precisely that reason. I mean, it then went into legislation. But in a way, I think we now, and we now in Ireland, have that fight ahead of us of, in a way, I suppose we've got to make the legislation better, of course, but ultimately we've got to get it out of the law. That's our big challenge now over the next decade is to get it out of the law entirely. And I think uh, that's the way I would be having a conversation with campaigners in the US, not terribly, terribly practical. The final point I would say to them is, for what it's worth, and whether you do it state by state or whatever, the bigger and wider and deeper your platform, your coalition, the more chance you have. And that's true, not just for abortion. It's also true for same-sex relationships, which Clarence Thomas is coming after, for same-sex marriage, which he's coming after, for all those fundamental privacy rights in the American Constitution, the bigger, the wider, the deeper your platform, your campaign platform, the more chance you have of making an inroad. Yeah, I want to pick up on a couple of things that you said there, Alva, because I totally agree with what you're saying with regards to the state by state, um, town by town, street by street, um, dissemination of protest. And I guess of course, there have been so many people on the ground resisting things that have been happening in Alabama, in Texas, in Missouri, um, and the pernicious use of various laws, like even like planning laws on corridor width to get, you know, um, mm. abortion clinics shut down and all this kind of stuff that was really ongoing and that was very, very strategic um, on on the um, anti-woman, um, anti-choice side of, of this and and I suppose that there can be a de uh, an exceptionalism in, in the US as there can be in loads of places and a default to like, oh, that's for the Supreme Court to decide and that's for, you know, that's for the Constitution or that's for the law. It's like, no, that's for you. That's for you to, to get out and do that all the time, all the time. And the other thing that you said about the conversation, like, um, you know, obviously, the, the social justice movements in Ireland, you know, the marriage equality movement and the repeal movement changed our social cohesion. That's how successful the, the mm -hmm. that kind of empathic um, framework of discourse that occurred happened around listening and stuff like that. And I really, were, I totally understand and I completely appreciate and I relate to how angry people are on social media. And But I also get very... Um, just kind of depressed or something that it's the same points being made, the same. It's like, we know why ab abortion is important. We know what the forces are that are trying to take women's rights away. We understand mm -hmm. them. We understand the reasons why this is happening. But what are you going to do about it and how are you going to reach people who are actually also being reached by that messaging? And what does that look like? And how can you 
shatter the facade of American civility that is very superficial, you know, that that actually serves to hide all of these kind of ugly things that are happening. But also, what does that, how can you capitalize on that civility and have a nice day culture and, you know, parks and rec town hall culture? How can you do that? Like, are people going to be in their apartment block, in their village, in their town, you know, in their parish, in their constituency, in their city every week going, we have an open meeting on this to talk, just to talk, not to fight. And, And is that going to happen? Um, you know, that, yeah. Um, and I wanted to say just one more thing on 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 your points about I can't remember what it is now. So we we, we kind of might move on. Um, because I suppose the worry is that this becomes a series of protracted legal battles across all states, which I think it will, and that then people feel very disconnected from that and aren't actually making the fundamental change on the ground within people. You know, the the cliched old hearts and minds or organisation that are. are Go on. That's that's where I think it's really important that um, there was something that you said earlier, which I think relates to that point there about not getting stuck in the legal battles. And that's why I was in in a very roundabout way making the point about the importance of reframing, recasting, uh, rethinking how we actually think and talk about abortion. Um, Because I think that when, when you do that, you begin to move away from the very close pitched Uh, legal and legislative uh, battles. And I think that we really did do that in relation to abortion. Not enough, and we we have to do it very much more. But we did uh, did start saying, for example, um, that it's really important to stop thinking about abortion in moral terms. This is not about good and evil. It's good and evil. It's about what, what do women need? And maybe we didn't do it perfectly. We certainly didn't. Nothing is perfect. But we began to move it over to say, look, it's actually much more productive if you think about what does a woman need when she doesn't wish to or cannot uh, continue with the pregnant pregnancy? What she needs is to get the right kind of care. She needs to get the proper sort of health treatment that she needs for that. And I was really quite encouraged the other day to see a tweet. I think it was actually from Catholics for Choice in the US that simply said abortion is healthcare, abortion is healthcare, abortion is healthcare, abortion is healthcare. And it's really kind of interesting that there are quite a lot of groups and organisations there trying to move it away from that very narrow place where it can get stuck in laws and legislatures. Now, I actually do think that the feet on the street are really important. I think that hugely, hugely And, you know, I love the way Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez talks about it, where she is much more militant and and all her gang, actually, much more militant and much more um, assertive, aggressive even, I think is quite quite a good word to use there, an important word, than the general run of Democrats. I mean, I do actually think the Democrats have to get their act together on this and really coming out with half, you know, half, um, half confirmed confectioned uh, plans and so on. I, I mean, I don't, they're not going to get, they're not, they're not going to get a federal law. So actually, they're just not going to get it at the moment. Yeah. We're going to get so, into that in, in one second, Alva, yeah. about, about the Dems, about, but I think you're, you're so right about the protest. And also, I, I, I suppose the thing about the healthcare argument is that there is the, the healthcare context in America is so dysfunctional and so warped. And, you know, in Ireland, what we did is got away from 
the discourse being dominated by either legalistic or theological arguments. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in America, all you have is legalistic and theological arguments. So we made a choice to do that. We made yes, a decision. Yeah, there was a stra- strategy. Yeah. And it did actually work. And when you look at when you look at South America, and let's remember that, you know, um, the countries in South America that are such a source of hope also for uh, the US. I mean, it's not just Ireland, it's happened elsewhere as well, where they just move it away and where certainly in South America it's that, that, that sort of huge weight of popular movement that has really pushed forward uh, abortion in in um, Argentina and uh, Colombia and so on. That's really pushed that forward. Really, really, really important and, and incredibly, incredibly cleverly and smartly and beautifully done too you know really amazing so I I, I mean yeah yeah I, I think don't know. as well like I think I'd encourage all um, Americans uh, or people in America interested in in what a broad coalition looks like or what a porous and widely cast and as you say you talk about the depth of of, of a movement looks like to read um, the book Sarah Shulman put out last year Let the Record Show which is a political history of ACT UP in New York and how mm-hmm. their strategies mm-hmm. were so really really um, like malleable, open, porous, diverse, active, and how yes. nobody criticized somebody else for their tactics, but people just were at where they're at there, let do what they were do, and it all kind of fed in. And that was very, very um, important in Ireland as well, creating this decentralized um, locally or uh, local organizations that from the ground up, that people campaigned in the way that they could, in the vocabulary that they could, with the peers that they knew, um, and with the tactics and tools that were available to them at various lev- levels of, of privilege and expertise and, and so on. But let's talk about the Democrats then, which you mentioned, because I've been tearing my fucking hair out listening to this <laughs> messaging of, you know, vote for us in November, women's rights are on the ballot. It's like they're not on the ballot in November. It's not about your party. And, and, and it's so good to see some pressure move, um, you know, with regards to what AOC is doing, as you mentioned, um, uh, and having to, the prospect of reconfiguring the Supreme Court itself and that urgency is really required. But I'm just wondering, you know, with your political brain, what you think about their tactics, because it just feels like head in hands, you know, anemic milk toast stuff all over again. Yes, but, but, you know, that is, that is the truth of, that is the truth of politics, if you like. The extremism is all with the Republicans now, although it is also true that not all Republicans really want that. And there is the possibility of a challenge, of course, to Trump's sort of automatic renomination, <coughs> ultimately for the presidentials. But, you know, it it is very, oh gosh, I mean, democratic politics in I mean, that's why Bernie Sanders was so important. Let me just sum it up in that way quickly for the sake of the podcast that, you know, Bernie Sanders was the man, although Bernie did have still some way to go on understanding the importance of women's liberation. And I would make no, have no shame in saying that. But I think that, um, well, I, I, I think two things. I think that for the, the Democrats to be saying, oh, yes, turn out, come for the midterms, that, of course, that matters. People should do it in any case. But they've got to be putting something on the table. They've got to be saying, what is the commitment? What exactly are we going to do? And not just about that one 
focus point of abortion. But what are we going to do about health care more generally? Because Obamacare is simply never, ever, ever, ever going to be enough. So, you know, it's about those much more, what are they doing about education? Are they finally really going to absolutely put the squeeze on gun control? What are they doing? All of the the issues that I mentioned as the, you know, the Supreme Court having deliberately screwed up on, have deliberately um, uh, tightened up on, what are the Democrats going to take that on? Are they going to take on those issues? Are they, in other words, going to radicalise? And unless the Democrats in the US can radicalise, they're not really going to do very much better or very much more than they've ever done before. And that is the truth of the matter. And I would not be holding out any candles. So there is a very real sense in which you, you feel that when there is this situation of huge division and polarization and you've two sides, that you're thinking, well, can something else not actually happen and insert itself between these two? Um, But it has to because the Democrats, it's in their interest to be the opposition because the minute it was announced Roe v. Wade, there was all the requests for funding to the individual uh, politicians rather than supporting abortion access and abortion care. So it actually works in their favour to be for this conversation to be happening because we're the answer, vote for us and give us money. So without that, like if they then the conversation that's coming down is like it's too polarised and we don't want to go into that. So it doesn't actually work politically for them to do that. So there has to be the third wheel. Yeah. That can't be the answer. Well, but that's the difficulty in in the composition, if you like, of the American political system. And I mean, it does feel to me as if it as if that is ultimately going to happen, as if there is going to be some kind of broadening of that political uh, political representative system. But that's not going to happen by the midterms, and the, obviously. And the problem about the midterms is that people are going to be pretty fed up and they may not turn out for the Democrats. They turn out for the Republicans. They may not turn out really for the Democrats. And that's where the big problem is. And certainly if I were, well, thank goodness I'm not. But, you know, if... If one were involved, I would be much more inclined to take the AOC uh, route and to be saying, look, actually, the only thing we can do at the moment is to become a lot more militant and to make a lot more noise and to say these are the demands that we have as Democrats, unwilling Democrats, but nonetheless as Democrats, these are the demands that we have of our own party. We need to see much more, frankly, bucks on the table. What is going to be spent on building healthcare? What is going to be spent on fundamental education? I mean, education in the US needs billions spent on it. What are we going to do about gun control? How are we going to organize? And there, I don't, I mean, it's only a very small number of Democrats who are reluctant Democrats who are actually raising those kinds of questions. So I think the the more that socialists, and you might say, well, I would say that, but you know, um, I think it's important to say it, the more that socialists in the US can keep intervening in those debates, can keep up the pressure, can keep up saying, it's not that there's a third way, it's that we need really to tackle the fundamental problem of um, American, of US society, which is 
well, the double problem of a capitalism and patriarchy working hand in hand and that it is absolutely white dominated. So, you know, they've got to grasp those things. Um, but I'm so aware here I am sitting in, in Dublin talking about this and looking at the huge efforts that I can see already going on. For sure. And the only thing you can say is that, look, it is going to take time, but it is worth it. But the one the one thing I would, the one other thing I would say that kind of, I don't know if it's hopeful or not, but the Supreme Court is so disgraceful. It is so shameful. It is so dangerous. It is such an appalling place, despite the three very good uh, Supreme Court judges who are there, but whose voices are, of course, drowned out. I don't think there's much to be gained from, you know, cosmetically fiddling around with the Supreme Court. Uh, There's part of me that feels it is so bad that maybe it should drive itself into the ground. Yeah, it's done. Have to be entirely reconstituted. Maybe there is, it's time for a new constitution. You know, maybe it's time to have a very different, it is certainly time to have a very different vision of what the United States of America can and should be. And I would never, ever, ever give up on the possibility and on the importance of fighting for a vision of what a better world can be. I mean, we do that here all the time because we have really, I mean, I think we should congratulate ourselves on on a couple of really stunning victories, but they're the past. We now have to look at what's happening now. And are we really building on those? What are the issues? Are we really tackling them? What do we need to do now? Are we really doing those things? How have people's lives generally massively improved. Actually, at the present time, you'd have to say, not a lot. People don't have anywhere. So many people have nowhere to live. Ten and a half thousand homeless people, for heaven's sake, in this tiny, tiny place. For example, 200, 300 women going to the UK for abortion every year in this, from this tiny, tiny place. So I would say you always have to keep on going. And I would just support absolutely everything that American radicals, socialists, pro-abortion activists are doing at the moment and saying, the more you can do it together, the better. The more you can come together, even if there are differences between you, bear in mind you have a common goal. You have a different vision of what the United States of America can be like. And Listen to those wonderful people that you have got who can lead you there, who can impassion you and fire you up to get there because you don't want, I can only imagine, I can't even imagine the trough of despond that so many wonderful people are in. All those millions and millions and millions and millions of Americans who don't for one minute buy any of this. How, 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 maybe the most important thing is to get them out, pull them up out of the trough of despond and say, yes, there is hope. There is hope. Get out there. It's not just about donating dollars. It's about feeling, feeling your feet on the street when you go out and call and claim and clamor. That's so much of what I would hope for Americans at the moment. And I, I just wish that we could all be part of that. And I, 
I'd go over in a minute if I had two working two working feet, which I don't just yet, but I will do. I'd be over in a flash. Before we re, uh, lift them out of despondency to go back in, you spoke about capitalism and the patriarchy being big factors in what this is all about. But also we saw during the week uh the quiet part being said out loud where one of the Republicans was like, thank you for giving us the white um, the white reproductive safety. So there is obviously a big um, there is a lot of white supremacy being coming through and um, perhaps mm-hmm. abortion being used to bring white supremacy to a bigger level. Do you think that's something that is, uh, how do you get around that in itself because of the historical uh, impact that's had in America. It's, it's something we can't really comprehend here, even though it's an issue on a smaller scale, but it's so ingrained historically that how do you get over that when you're trying to unite uh, people who fundamentally just cannot see past that? Well, those people who can't and won't see past that at the present time and just simply will not do. I mean, I, I think you... I think it's always very difficult to convince people who absolutely simply viscerally do not want to be convinced and you're better off actually not trying. Um, you really can't do that. Politically, it's it's kind of impossible. You always have to go first with those who are amenable at least to, to listening and to talking and to to, to working something through. And I do believe that there are very many millions of Americans white who are actually at least willing to do that. They are at least willing. Um, whether or not that will happen, Andrea, I, you know, it is such an incredibly fraught and difficult, incredibly difficult issue that we don't have the same experience of that it's really hard to say practically how that is carried out. The only thing that I would say with absolute certainty is that that is a hugely central part. It is an absolutely central part of the American struggle for freedom at the moment. And of course, there will not be freedom and there will not be that different America until such time as race is sorted. But it is also true around gender. It is also true around gender. And I think that, you know, seeing the ways in which those two different factors, if you like, enmesh and are also intertwined is also very important. And I I can never understand, I don't think you can be, in my book, there are many kinds of feminisms I know, but I just don't see how you can be feminist and not also be anti-racist. You know, I, I also don't actually see how you can't be anti-capitalist, but there are many practicing feminists out there who are not necessarily anti-capitalist. And I am willing to have those conversations. I just don't see it myself because I think any social system which is oppressive and which creates hierarchies has to be tackled and confronted. It's really hard to tackle them all at once. But I do think that what, what, what we could have been better at here, quite definitely, what we could have done more about was to see that enmeshing, to understand that kind of nexus there is between different forms of oppression. And I would also very much put in their disability, which we still do not talk about um, nearly enough, and to see how those systems uh, of oppression are intertwined and how you, taking them kind of one by one is what you kind of do for 
for the sake it almost of convenience and simplicity, and there is a very good argument for that, but that's not how we live our lives. We live our lives in very much more complicated kind of way. You're never just a woman. You're never just a man. You're never just white. You know, you're never whatever. You, you're always that complex. And I think allowing our minds to deal with much more complex forms of oppression is really, really, really important. But that is for people who can, you know, I need people around who are going to think through those kinds of ways of thinking and re-envisioning and, and having almost a different language, a different language about things. Um, that's not a very helpful answer, really, is it, Andrea? But it, it, so well, much... You haven't solved white supremacy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or anything, or anything. I think what I'm saying is that, you know, I I'm, I'm often think, you know, in my own kind of life that, oh, my God, I absolutely need to sit back and think about that. Or I need to read more about how to think about that. That when it is very complicated and when things are really very bad, as they are in so many different ways, that you also need to sort of build in that space for the people who are doing that thinking and the time for yourself to be doing that thinking. And to read, for example, Sarah Sherman's wonderful book or do whatever it is. Um, but when I look at the US, I think, would I be able to do all of those things? I don't know. I mean, I think I would be banding together with people who are as like-minded as possible and looking for others and seeing what are the connections between us and building, building, building and not giving up on the importance of building. You can't give up. You can't give up. You can't give up because if you give up, there is no hope and people's lives are even more miserable. So, And it's a we tactic can't. as well. The hopelessness is, is, a, is a tactic, is a strategic yeah. outcome of the nihilism that's been yes. created. Um, so that that's that's you know in in being hopeful you're strategically opposing the imposition of nihilism and that you know you can never fix this you can never do anything right and i think as well it's like really incumbent on white people a lot of whom in america are of course maybe knowledgeable about the discussion around reproductive rights but may only be protesting now about it or getting into the conversation now about it to look to the people of colour who have been fighting for the rollback that was affecting them, you know, all along, you know, all along in terms of access because the, the as you said, uh, Alva, at the top, like the, the initial rollback was around access, you know, and it doesn't matter what the hell you have in your constitution or what the Supreme Court is saying yes. or what is legal if you actually cannot access it. Um, Andrea, you wanted to talk about the, the before we, we wrap up, about the digital surveillance aspect of, of mm. this. Mm. Yeah, I suppose things have changed so much and issues that people, people looking for an abortion had to face before and um, the new digital surveillance has become a real thing and we see people being uh, incarcerated for uh, when a miscarriage has happened because they've searched for um, abortion related terms so how what is the I don't want a solution I suppose but how do you manage that in a in it kind of feels like you'd almost be afraid to look for answers yes. if you're living in the US and what is this what what is the solution 
Yes. Uh, well, again, I mean, I don't have the solutions, Andrea, but it's really interesting because I was reading a piece the other day by Gia Tolentino in, I, I think it was probably the New Yorker. It was on, I was reading it online. So not everything that happens digitally is bad. But, you know, she was saying actually that really uh, one of the big impacts, obviously, of um, the Supreme Court decision is that you have this sense that America has become become this society of surveillance and criminalization. And of course, and I just thought that that was so important that it, it, it actually further, um, it further creates this sense of that society of, of surveillance. And I'm thinking, actually bring back Foucault, who I never totally followed, but I'm kind of thinking surveillance, the panopticon and all that sort of thing is, we're, 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 we're back on track with that, sadly. Uh, and of course, the major mechanism of surveillance is precisely, as you say, through social media. And <clears throat> I think that that clearly, I clearly I don't have, uh, but the surveillance of the deliverers of social media and the controllers of social media becomes all the more important. So it is not just about um, social media, the social media as a platform for surveillance, but who are the enablers of that surveillance. And I think that that is something which we know perfectly well has to be taken on, that we have these massive, massive, massive uh, social media corporations, if that's corporations is the correct word, I'm not sure even, who are effectively the enablers of a society of surveillance. And until we tackle that, and that is about tackling capitalism, of that there is no question or doubt whatsoever, we are not going to get very far with it when you have companies that are much more powerful than a state uh, you really, really, really are in trouble. So again, that is an incredibly complicated area. On the ground and on a daily basis, what you do about it is not, you know, it, I, I think in a way, Andrea, I'm going to say, give me a break. I'm 76. I am not a digital native. My granddaughter, age nine, has more understanding of in her bones, in her fingertips, of how this society, how this digital society works than I can possibly do. I mean, I still reach for the phone to talk with people in a kind of what I think is a normal way, whereas nobody who's 20, 30 years younger, I can see you smiling, Andrea, uh, would reach for the phone. You know, it's like send her a message or something. That there are different worlds and they're generationally very separate. So I'm saying to you, there's no point in coming to me about that because I'm looking on aghast and it is hard for me to, it's easy for me to say, well, keep away from it because I've never really been integrated into it. But there are all of you know your generation and, and even more so, if I may say so politely, younger generations who are I mean, just absolutely wedded to and just their phones are there all the time and that's where they are. And there's no point in saying to them, don't engage because that is their, that is their center of engagement. So you have, you always have to get to the controllers who is in control of this. And it is not, it is not um, the people, the users, it is not the users, it is the makers, the deliverers, the enablers. And unless we have international control of what happens 
um, on social media and digital uh, means of communication, unless there are control mechanisms and regulations set in place, I, I don't know what the future is going to be like. We have these fights every single day internationally across the world. Look, somebody is, is taking something on with Meta and not getting anywhere or is, you know, looking at what is the future of, of Twitter or something. Actually, I don't really care very much about Twitter. It's the other ones um, that are really that are really highly problematic. But I definitely don't have those solutions. And I think that now we should be pouring funding into enabling younger younger people to think through, to do the research, to do the thinking, to do the work that is actually going to tackle how you exist, how you live, how freedom survives, how where what happens to freedom in a world where surveillance is the central mechanism of control. Yeah, I mean, the digital oligarchs, you know, the American digital oligarchs need to be kind of taken down in so many ways. But I do think there's loads of positive things happening in terms of unionization movements, particularly in Amazon. But then you see this absolute hypocrisy that they're like, oh, we'll provide travel costs or whatever, you know, on one hand for their very high paid workers, probably not for the people uh, who outsource, who they outsource the grunt work to, while simultaneously capitulating to totally oppressive authoritarian regimes um, to deny people rights and freedom. We see this with Amazon saying that they're going to capitulate to Qatar to, so that people can't get bloody rainbow flags posted uh, to Qatari addresses during the World Cup and all that. So all of those, um, that kind of corrupt digital oligarchy that supersedes nation states can, you know, well, go fuck itself. The really. of unions, bring yes. back trade unionism, all yes. is not lost. And Ryanair is going on strike in, in Southern Europe, which is going to mess up holidays for a lot of people. But my goodness, isn't that a step forward to the future? Absolutely. Go for it, to the, the Ryanair yes. workers. Send Mick Lynch to the US. Yeah, send Mick Lynch. But Liz, before... Before we wrap up, and I think one of the things about the digital uh, space, like so much of this um, discourse is going to be fought within that. And I just think people, you know, people need to kind of get a sense of, of perspective in terms of that stuff has to be tethered to reality. Because if all you're doing is having circular arguments with uh, people who are never going to come on board and who actually are using time wasting and energy draining as a tactic to disrupt your own momentum, you know, you need to do, step away from that. And the one thing that I think we've all learned from the past decade in Ireland is something that is energy giving and is mobilizing is protest. It is a means like it is within its own self. If you go out and there's 10 people, as you say, um, Alva or 100 or 200 or three or whatever, the energy that is transmitted within those gatherings will give you the momentum to keep going. That's where yes. it's going to be at. And it has to be tethered to the street. I was wondering, as we finish up, if you were an American person listening to this and you feel dejected, you know, um, like Irish people uh, and people in Ireland are with you and people all over the world um, are with you as we are with people in so many jurisdictions, including Poland and so on. But what would be your one piece of advice to people right now, Alva? 
join something, join the group that's, you know, tackling this, confronting it, um, that's closest to you, that's nearest to you, that you can reach most easily, that corresponds to your interests. Join it, get involved, get engaged. Do not sit back. Um, hope is never lost until hope is gone. And hope is something that we, we keep with us and we must keep with us. So I would say join, join, get involved, get engaged and definitely get out on the streets. There's nothing like feeling the pace onto your feet and and to hear voices raised uh, with you in chorus uh, to feel, yes, we can do something because we can do it together. So I would say join up, join up and join up with the other joiners. In other words, let your group join up with that other group over there and with that other group down the road and with the others in the state over there and, and absolutely keep going. Never, ever, 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 ever give up on the fight for freedom because to do that is somehow to abdicate one's responsibility to humanity, I think. And I think, uh, so maybe try and keep that bigger, more hopeful picture uh, in mind. And the other thing is that, you know, that that Supreme Court, I, I don't think it's going to last the course. I think that there will truly be some kind of a blow up. I think that all of those millions and millions of people in the US, ultimately, that they are going to say enough is enough. So be one of them. Be one of those who moves that point to come more quickly. Join, just join, engage, get involved. We outnumber the oppressors. We absolutely do. And just standing up in solidarity with other people, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, even if you think you don't know very much about something, just get involved. And it is such it is such a life-giving energy and a force for people. It, it, it's just so important. And it, it is about thinking, if, if you're in the happy position of being able to think over and beyond yourself, if you have enough for yourself today, you have that space to think about somebody else and what they're going through. And that has got to enhance our experience of being alive. It, it, it just does. So I would say we are absolutely with all of those who are protesting in, in the States against the many evils that they're facing. And we're absolutely there. And in fact, you know, we would go over if we could, but we do have our own battles to fight here in Europe as well. And I would always say that we have no room for complacency here. We have to keep our flags flying. We have to expand our freedoms and our rights. And we have to look at who needs who needs our support at the moment. And that's another podcast, really. She I'll said, hopefully. <laughs> Alva Smith, thank you so much for all of that brilliant, insightful, expert advice and hope as per usual. You're an absolute legend and, and we're just always so, so grateful to talk to you. Thank you. What's getting in the sea, Andrea? Okay, we've kind of covered the uh craziness that's going on with the British government um, in Northern Ireland already and we've definitely covered um, abortion rights but last week uh, in 
the UK, 61 Conservative MPs voted against the government's plan to extend abortion access in Northern Ireland with a further 190 not recording a vote. Um, the usual people that you would expect were among that. Uh, one includes the Brexit Opportunities Minister, Jacob Rees-Mogg, um, and he's previously said that he's completely opposed to women having the right to abortion, including in the cases of rape or incest. And he is also the patron of the anti-abortion organisation Right to Life. Um, he was also joined by Conservative MP Maria Caulfield, who is another Right to Life patron, but she is also the government's Women's Health Minister. Farm. Yikes. Um, so we're very focused on what is happening in North America at the moment, justifiably, but there is uh, conversations to be had of uh, what it could happen in the UK and what is already happening in Northern Ireland. Northern Irish women still have to travel and um, the right to abortion is not uh, there. So right on our doorstep, we have um, a big gap in rights and we can't be complacent as well as Alva obviously said, but um, we also have to be aware of where the gaps of rights already are and where the fight needs to happen. Um, in the UK, though, there uh, is a recent poll was done by YouGov that shows that 85% of the public believe that women should have the right to an abortion compared to just 5% who disagree. So once again, we're seeing this really small group of people who are getting the right to control uh, the majority of people, which we've seen with SCOTUS and which we uh, are now seeing with the Conservative uh, MPs um, in the North. So, yeah, that can, it's it's frightening and it can all get in the sea, to be honest. Yeah, defo. I mean, access to abortion has been a consistent problem in, in the North, even when uh, progress has been made. So, yeah, I think it's all about the one lesson that we can take is... is being on high alert is not a overreaction. I want to know what's bananas this week, Andrea. Hit me. Oh, oh, Una, Una, Una. Um, we did have a very positive uh, podcast that we were trying to get together, but we couldn't get the speakers on it. Um, we'll try and move towards that next week. But um, so I'm going to hold that as a secret, guys. Uh, watch out for my Instagram. We'll unveil that soon. But close to that um, is our general public realm. Now, this <laughs> <laughs> seems like maybe a wide scope but anyone who's walked around Dublin, and I'm sorry for making it Dublin-centric again, but look, that's who I am and that's where I live. Dublin city um, centre you're talking about then? Yes. Yeah. Um, And it's, you just have to walk down like the centre of the universe at William Street uh, to see the cobblestones that are then interjected with tarmac that are then, it just is like, how is this what we're aiming for on our streets? Fine. But then this week on our main piazza um, of College Green, our main thoroughfare, essentially, uh, which was is essentially the centre of the city, um, where we have literal poles everywhere. Lewis has gone through. Uh, it's just a, a mess. Now, the new... Um, 
Lord Mayor of Dublin was appointed this week and they have made it their priority to get rid of all the crap that's on the streets, um, which is really a great thing to have from a Lord Mayor. Great. But it was all highlighted when somebody took a picture of now no shade on spar. They're just trying to do their bits and provide somewhere to sit and utilize their outdoor space. But it just they put out tables and they which were roped off and they used one of the barriers for these tables as like four different sized, different colored electricity boxes just that were plonked in the middle. And when you just look at it and somebody oh did gosh. a comparison between here's Amsterdam, here's Paris, here's like all these other cities that have beautiful outdoor seating. It's all kind of like matches. It looks nice. The path is lovely. And then you have this these few tables plonked beside electricity boxes with tarmac all over the place. There's no even cohesion of the of the of the path. It's like what are we up to? And I understand the the challenge of getting things over the line for College Green. And I know that there has been a lot of tries to do that, but that's not good enough. It's not good enough that that is like, it's challenging. So what? So much is challenging. And we're left with the fucking state of the place and ha- having to like, what if things aren't depressing enough, the city just looks awful. And yeah, it really does. Calling for a head of aesthetics being required to oversee these things and uh, like a long time calling for this and it's not kicking in and you just like there's been a number of tweets the last few days of like and they're like they're obviously meant to be funny but it was like put nine gays with a clipboard and you'd have this city and uh looking like a new and an over hall instantly but there's just is no consideration for what things look like it's like even when we look at castle market when uh the bricks were all hadn't been attended to so they're in bits so they're like we'll just put tarmac down now obviously uh that is great for accessibility but yellow tarmac that just looks dirty now like that nobody thought like it's great that we have something that works but maybe can we think about what things look like it's not uh, frivolous and it's not too much to ask that where we our public realm might reflect something a bit more ambitious than just shoving a bit of tarmac on the road. It's really embarrassing it's really really embarrassing um, and I don't know what the solution is. Obviously people in the council at the executive in particular need to be held to account for the state of the city on, in loads of ways in terms of the rubbish um, and your, in terms of like just broken pathways, broken roads things that actually reflect the character and grain of the city, like cobblestones, just make them better. Don't tarmac over them. You know, they've done that in Temple Bar as well, which had this really kind of unique, lovely magic to the to those cobblestones. And then it's all just t- the majority of it now, an awful lot of it is just tarmacked over and the cobblestones that are there are not being repaired. And it's this constant thing of letting things fall to shit and then replacing it with something really cheap and ugly. And it's a, it's a huge, it's a chronic, chronic issue in the city. And it's so ironic that the whole city was geared towards tourism and you just kind of see tourists wandering around, nowhere to hang out, no squares to kind of lounge in, nowhere to just actually flaneur or take in a city that you have in other European capitals. Um, It's grim and it's kippy. And uh, I think the people who are in charge of that should be really, really embarrassed 
of how they've let, let things things slide and not only that but just not had any good ideas you don't even have to go you know um get on one of those cancelled flights to go some, to go somewhere and see where they're doing it better you know if you look at what the improvements that were made in Dunleary, for example, during the pandemic in terms of public realm. And if you look at different towns Cork around... put up a picture of their uh, pedestrianised yeah. areas in comparison. They just had, hey, and it was like all these lovely chairs and tables and everything. And then it was like this chair in the middle of... And even like where you look at Temple Bar, the Meeting House Square, what's happened down there. Businesses oh, yeah. have completely taken over the public space. Um, and put up barriers there's no walkthrough av- available it's like what is going on why why there's a lack of understanding of design and, and and even when the council does do something like creates public space what they actually end up doing is creating like dead space and um they need to be held to account and uh, Una, if somebody might happen to sit in those spaces that it would be antisocial. <laughs> yeah Right. Well, that is bananas. You're dead right. And we will, of course, come back to that as we have done many times uh, on the podcast. But now, turn that frown upside down, Andrea. It's time for our fave bits. Woo! Um, My fave bits, Dublin Fringe Festival is back. Tickets are going on sale Friday, 1st of July at 1pm. Uh, so that's probably in the past when you're listening. Some great shows. This is Pop Baby, our faves. Uh, have you listened to our episode with them about their uh, their show party scene last week? Um, they have a new show, Wake, which is a follow-on to uh, Riot. Um, not a follow-on. Their biggest show since Riot. It, it has it has a, a lot of similarities in the visualisation. So I'm getting a, a, an energy of joy and uplifting for the city. Stunning. Uh, I'm really excited also about Remnant Ecologies, which is um, an opening up of the Botanic Gardens with a light and audio show um, that's done in conjunction with the Axis and Ballymun. Um, and Thirst Trap also going on sale, which is a meditation for you to do in your bath but you also get a delivery of things to change your interior your environment while you're doing it and I just love that one good thing that came well a few good things one of the good things that came out of the pandemic was the ability to not to be able to do stuff um at home as well in a theatrical way so the fact that there's kind of like not just going to the theater that we've looked at a bigger perspective of how we might enjoy art and doing things etc so really excited about that my other fave bit uh pride last week um Rebecca Talon de Javier uh, was the Grand Marshal at Dublin Pride, which I thought was the perfect antithesis to all the carry on that happened in the run up to uh, Pride uh, with Orti and the conversations um, around trans lives um, existing, etc. Um, and trans and intersex pride is on the 16th of July. So do put that in your diary if you can make it. Do uh, go and offer support. Um, Elvis. I've got it in my fave bit because I didn't do very much this week and well, I did a lot, but not that could be warranted of inclusion. But Elvis, I went to the cinema to see it. I didn't love it. I haven't seen it yet. It's good. It's an hour too long. Um, I enjoyed it, but yeah, it's, it's two hours and 39 minutes long. It's beautiful. Is it actually? Holy moly. Yeah. It's very long. And everyone's like, oh, you won't even notice it. And I was like, 
like at the 90 minute mark, I was literally looking at the watch going, what time is it? Is it like, it must be nearly over by now, mm. which is never what you want to feel in a, in a film. Baz Luhrmann films can give me a bit of a headache sometimes. Okay. I say this as somebody who's been to Graceland twice. Um, well, it's not too Baz Luhrmann-y. I think for me, that was an issue because hmm. like it wasn't as singy dancey. It was quite filmy. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, okay, oh, Donald Clark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hang Tough have a new exhibition called Paw Pair uh, where they have a, a, the, a very, op- not optimistic, a very large scale number of people who've been asked to submit artworks in the same uh, capacity. So it's all on paper so that all the artworks are brought together under the format. Uh, Interestingly, 61 female to male, 54 male artists. So um, it goes to show you, we often hear that, well, there's just no female artists. Ha ha. Yes, there is. Uh, Hang Tough are showing that. Um, it's on the 15th, kicks off on the 15th of July in uh, premises on College Green. You'll see it. It's like a big paw pair in the window. And finally, absolutely fabulous. It's not new, but it's still great. And I just, every time I watch it, I never can get over how they managed to make it so timeless that it almost feels like it could have been made last week um, on their commentary on 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 PR and fads and like oh what the way things work it's just so astute so funny so brilliant fab my fave bits um i'm up in belfast at the moment at the docks ireland festival which is such a good um documentary film festival and i did the q and a with catherine ferguson uh, the director of the new documentary in Sinead O'Connor, Nothing Compares, and uh, the editor, Mick Mahan, as well. It was amazing opening night film, massive crowd. Oh, this is just such a good documentary. I mean, I, it's just so fantastic. It's beautifully made film. And um, it it will be uh, hopefully coming to, to cinemas around the place. So when it does come out, go see. It's it's a, It just really contextualizes how extraordinary an artist she was. And the product... Um, that she was of her uh, environment in Ireland at the time. Uh, it's very, very powerful, inspiring, rage-inducing, beautiful, brilliant. So well done to Catherine Ferguson for making really, really extraordinary film. Pride was a blast in Dublin. Um, my highlight was uh, the mother block party at uh, Collins Barks, which was just fantastic, and especially Peaches on the Sunday. She's just always turns it up. It was just so good. And shout out to the Radical Queer Pride crew, Radical Queer Pride for Homes as well. Um, and they're uh, gathering at at the um, Pride March on Saturday. That was really, really great. Uh, shout out to Party Scene as well. If you haven't listened to her podcast last week, as Andrea was saying, it closes Saturday, uh, 2nd of July. So try and get to see it. There's loads of great gigs oh, on. It's sold out. You can only get returns, but do, oh, okay. yeah, yeah. Loads of great gigs on um, in Dublin this weekend and loads of other places. Computer Love and Sugar Club. Uh, knee Capper playing the Workman's Fundraiser for Palestine. Fontaine's DC in the Ivy Gardens. Also enjoyed a bit of a Glastow binge and you can still uh, watch some bits on that. I loved Idol set. I thought that was fab. And uh, Galway Film Flash starts next week. It's opening with Ema Reynolds' new film Joyride. Ema Reynolds made the farthest and the documentary on Phil Linnett. Amazing filmmaker. So have fun everyone who's heading to Galway. Now it's time for Book of the Week. Book of the Week. Book of the Week. 
joke of the week this week. Um, oh, I've literally been running back to the hotel room that I've been staying in any time that I have to get into this. Don't you love when a novel comes along that you just really are immersed in, you want to keep getting back to. And and it's a friend of the pod. It is Connor Habib's new novel. It's called Hawk Mountain. It is like menacing, atmospheric, cinematic, like, oh, it's just so juicy. Um, it's about this, this guy, uh, kind of goes back and forth, past and present, um, two young men in school and then when they're adults and one of whom was, was bullying the other and then he turns up in his life years, years later and stuff starts to get weird. It is fantastic. It's getting amazing reviews. It's been shouted out in the New York Times um, book section this week. And I think it's going to be really, really um, big one for Connor. And uh, yeah, so if you're looking for a juicy, sinister novel to get locked into, that's the one. It's called Hawk Mountain. Um, and, and I'm just really, really enjoying it, really enjoying it. So uh, well done to Connor. So proud of him as well. We just go like, oh my God, this writing is so brilliant. So this podcast is produced by Andrew Mangan of Castaway Media. Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack. Sarah Fox did all of our design. Andrea, get me dancing. This week's tuna chicken roll. Uh, there's my accent again. What is going on? I feel, I must feel very like actorial or something uh, Girlfriends Christine and the Queens Pam's Track Remix Boparama Get it into you Cynthia I've been Una Malali. I've been Andrea Horan This has been United Ireland And that was Roe vs Wade Give a gasp of envy. Fum, 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 fum